You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2012 Return to Classics by Hammer Horror, The Woman in Black. Sort of a study in madness, not unlike some of the other films that we've covered. Uh, we're talking about Psycho and what madness can do to somebody. And talking about Eraserhead is sort of a, a study in madness as well. And this is what happens when you get someone who's gone mad. And then they die, and then they come back. Death is not the end, to quote Imhotep. But we decided to do this one because it's a certain lady's birthday coming up, or already passed. I wonder when this is going to I like air. that you call me a lady. That makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, whenever this airs, it'll be airing right before, actually. Right oh, before. Okay, great, great. And you wanted to do this film out of all the other picks that you had an opportunity to pick from because it's a grab bag it's anything you want to do i want to do clown house so very badly because i like clowns and we did a clown for my birthday last year and it was my greatest wish and that's everyone's wish on their birthday right is a a clown that or clown house which maybe next year by then maybe more people will have seen clown house it'll it'll make me just as happy and we can cover 31 maybe we'll just do a clown stravaganza Mm-hmm. Clownapalooza. A cr- Clownapalooza. Now I'm all like thinking of all the clown movies. I can't stop it. But I had watched this over Halloween and I'd been sort of toying with all the clown movies to choose from. There's so many. And Chris had just sent me Clown Town and I had been, we'd watched Jeepers Creepers. So I had Clown House very, right on top of mind. And I couldn't decide what clown movie to watch. So then I decided Woman in Black because I knew that you would love it. So this is my gift to you, Wes. I love that aspect about you. Get you something means that I get something. It's not the way the world should work. Mm, It's very, very sweet. I absolutely love two things in this world. I love ghost stories and I love Hammer films. For those of you who don't know, we've talked about it on the show before. And we've covered a lot of Hammer films. Uh, Hammer was the absolute shit for a little while in the late 1950s to the 1960s. They really only got into horror in and around that. And of course, their biggie that a lot of woolly-haired academics will tell you is the 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 peak. And everything else was in nadir, the horror of Dracula starring Christopher Lee. Hammer Horror did a lot of other types of horror movies, not just surrounding the Wolfman and Dracula and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And just before they hit that realm of turning up the sleaze as much as possible for films like Vampire Lovers, they also had a lot of subtler types of films, including the movie that Christopher Lee maintains is the absolute best hammer horror he's ever made, which was Taste of Fear, also known as Scream of Fear. It's a very subtle film about a woman dealing with the fact that either she is going mad or there is a haunting happening in this home that she has, I believe, inherited. The the details are a little uh, foggy. And, of course, the truth of the situation is revealed towards the end. Was that a pun? The details are a little foggy? Is that a (laughs) pun here, Wes? When you're dealing with Hammer Horror, oh, man, they turn on the, the fog machines. But after a while, when Hammer got a little... 
formulaic. They started, instead of having a great attention to detail, they became a studio in the worst possible sense, really churning out a formulaic drove of endless sequels and just grasping at straws trying to find anything that was a hit. Not only the fact was the quality in their films going down, there were still some cool ones towards the end. Brides of Dracula comes to mind and shit like that. Well, that's not really towards the end. But anyway, the point is there was a lot of cool ones that were coming out, even amongst stuff that wasn't as you know great as they wanted to be. But audiences were changing. The quality of Hammer films was going down and they went away. And then seemingly out of nowhere, they came back. And the first thing they did really that got a lot of noise was a remake of Let the Right One In, Let Me In. Quite interesting. It doesn't really do a lot for me. I love the original so much, but it's a fine remake. It's a fine remake if you wanted a remake of that film. If I'd never seen Let the Right One In, Let Me In would have been pretty compelling. Yeah, pretty compelling. And and I think in in the worst case uh, of that film, I feel like it's really for more people that want films with a little bit more budget, feels a little bit more modern, and doesn't have subtitles, even though... The original film is not old, but it was, you know, Swedish. Some people are already making Train to Busan. I mean, might as well just make things months after they come. That is absolutely mind-boggling, and I'm glad you brought that up because I just read that a couple of days ago. I read it last night. And I said to myself, you have got to be fucking kidding me. This movie came out two seconds ago. I know, right? I, no, I'm very excited to listen to the next Bind Torture cast, which is out now, so it's like the last Bind Torture cast, not the next one anymore, because they apparently t- talk about it a little tiny bit. Sometimes they do talk about remakes. They paid a lot of attention. They're paying a lot of attention to the Inside remake. They paid mm-hmm. a lot of attention to the Martyrs remake. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have a, a pretty balanced opinion that we share for the most part of like, we'll give movies a chance. Any remake will give a chance. There's remakes I like better than the original in a lot of cases. And even the most ardent naysayer of remakes, you can probably trip people up because they say, I hate remakes. Ah, no remakes ever. Fuck remakes. And you say, John Carpenter's the thing. And they're like, well, that's a good one. I'm like, "Mm, David Cronenberg's the fly. Oh, well, well, I was like, well, it's a remake. It's a remake. Which Hills Have Eyes do you want to watch? Exactly. They're both great films. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there are remakes I hate. Of course. Yes. But you know what? There's original movies that were made that don't have remakes or sequels, and I hate them. So, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's brand new movies I hate that didn't have an original. So, yeah. And I hate them, too. So, yeah. You can just hate everything equally. That's what we do here at SpotterPictures.net. That's true. After Let Me In came out, they had a little bit of heat. And then Hammer Horror decided to come out with something that is so classically hammer with fog machines blazing fog machines and graveyards and they not only took their best and brightest british actors they also took a story absolutely beloved in the uk the woman in black based off of the book by susan hill that she wrote in 83 like mid 80s and so well known there it became a stage play a very popular stage play this is a this is a story that is very isolated to the uk there's radio plays on it and there was the um made for tv film yeah the 89 one the way that shirley jackson is beloved in the u.s Mm -hmm. is uh how susan hill and she wrote three of these gothic horrors really contemporary 
uh, woman too. She didn't write them in the 1800s, although you could be tricked easily mm-hmm. into thinking that these were written long time before they were mm-hmm. written so well. And the way that they're set, and even the remake hasn't updated anything, which I really like a little bit, but not much. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no cell phones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And then with that instant in my mind, and I even remember tweeting this at the time, Hammer Horror is back. Yeah, sitting in the theater, and I'm not a very sentimental person, and I'm not the biggest Hammer Horror fan, but sitting in the theater watching Woman in Black and seeing that Hammer logo across the screen, my my heart moved. And I thought it was so cool at the time, you know, we had been seeing the, the, the Marvel and DC logo doing this with their comic book pages. Hey, remember this? This is where we came from. And then Hammer Horror did its own version of that where it was just remember these posters, remember these iconic posters were flipping through them while the word hammer is right there. And I just got this chill and uh, and I was already really excited to be there because I got to go see an advanced screening. So the Woman in Black is very special to me in terms of the fact that it was the big change on SpiderPictures.net. It was the film that I got advanced tickets to see because of our friends at Room Morgue Magazine and sat down in the theater and I got to release a review one day before the film came out. Like regular reviewers. Yeah. Here's a review of the movie that you're just about to go and see. And that sparked a very big surge in viewership on splatterpictures.net. And yes, after the hoopla of the movie a couple of months later, it kind of went down. It still maintained a level of uh, notice from horror fans that were and other bloggers that wanted to know this type of information. Or people that were late to the game watching it on DVD, VOD if that was available and things like that. People that were late to the game. Mm-hmm. And you had done it really right by setting it up with a review of the 1989 version as well. Mm-hmm. That was always my love in writing for horror. There's always got to be a historical element to me as far as I'm concerned, because I think what I want to impart to people is how important horror is. And and I know that horror fans say that how awesome it is and how cool it is, but I, and I know there's this recurring theme from me that says it teaches us about society. It teaches us about the zeitgeist. It teaches us what decade by decade you can follow, what was important to us by horror. That is the power of horror. And I also wanted to make sure that even though this story was coming out, I didn't want people to think that this was a new story. I wanted people to know, more particularly because I'm thinking about my Canadian audiences, my American audiences, because obviously people in the UK know this frontwards and backwards. Mm -hmm. But I wanted them to know, hey, this big glossy film that's coming out, brought to us by this legendary film studio, started back in the 80s. And there was even a TV movie. And I thought the lost aspect that that would be for people, there was a TV movie based on The Woman in Black. It was the same urge to tell people about this, to get people ready for it. And if they wanted to maybe get a little warm up to see how things have changed, what counted in 1989 and how we modernized things for at the time, 2012. And modernized so subtly. Very, so very subtly. subtly. I, I, the I, story is, is pretty uh, contemporary, too, just with the things that it deals with. If there isn't provenance and historical bents to horror, there's at the very least uncanny coincidence. And mm-hmm. Susan Hill had lost a child, I think a four-year-old, around the time that she had written this story. And then quite quickly, the, it was turned into 
a film, a lot like Psycho was turned into a film by Hitchcock quite quickly and then remade years later. But it still rings true. It's not modernized very heavily. And even going into Bates Motel, it's modernized, but still has that same feeling and that same mood. And they still achieve that same sort of setting and suck you into the story the same sort of way because it is such a classic interesting story that has roots in what was going on historically and just uncanny coincidences if you happen to own a hotel by a highway that was recently rerouted or something Mm -hmm. but in this uh there's themes of single fatherhood Mm -hmm. and postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and being haunted by horrible ghosts you know like (laughs) i am all the time Right. So it, you do have those uncanny coincidences and they still maintain that same mood, even though it is updated a little tiny bit and mm-hmm. done with a huge budget and done with big name actors. Mm-hmm. What was fantastic, what Hammer did was said, oh, no, 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 no. We're doing it the Hammer horror way and we're doing it in service to this story. They're not inserting characters for more dialogue. They're not. There's huge stretches of this film where Daniel Radcliffe is by himself. you They are filming him alone in this house with, yes, scary things happening to keep your interest, but there's tons of moments where he's just walking the grounds, looking in different rooms, reading letters, and it's just him. And there must have been such an urge, or maybe there wasn't, but there had to have been someone, someone with money somewhere was looking at the dailies of this film and I'm wondering if they were panicking because <laughs> because like, he, people need certain shots to happen. People need certain beats to be hit. People need constant fucking stimulation, right? Yeah, like, but, like there's no talking. There's no talking. I think that the aggressive nature of this haunting probably would have put them at ease a little bit. Mm-hmm. But because that's the big difference between the 89 one and the 2012 one is that even though the thing haunting stuff happens pretty much as frequently, well, no, more frequently in the in the remake, but haunting stuff, it doesn't take too long for the haunting, the creepy stuff to be happening in the original one. Yeah. Um, I just think that the, the frequency of this and the camera techniques of the of the original one and how or the camera techniques of the new one maybe would have like assuaded some of that fear. Definitely, because when you had said um, that you felt that the first one was a little bit slow and it's yeah. a very quiet horror, I find it its tempo is about the same as this one, but it seems a lot busier because there is dialogue and it seemed that there must have been someone sitting back being like, no, we have to have people talking. We can't just have this guy looking into rooms uh, in dim light and seeing like, things in each room that remind you of the storyline mm-hmm. of the widow and you know you can't just have this guy doing nothing there he need, people need to come in the house mm-hmm. over and over and over again and break this uh where i guess they just got gutsy with yeah. the remake and allowed that to happen where there are stretches of no dialogue and no yeah. one else on screen but radcliffe mm-hmm. Because even in the 89 one, we have, which I was getting confused with the old one and the new one. That was kind of my problem. I was sitting here thinking, wait, what? Wait, where's this scene or where's that scene? And it's because the use of the wax cylinders, I thought, was in this one. And, not, and, and uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, when we're recording sound back in the day, we're recording onto wax cylinders. And then you would play them on a gramophone and then you would hear them. And so 
it was very common for people to find this new technological wonder as a bit of a novelty and they would narrate they would they would do their uh, journals onto sound and that was what was used in the original woman in black yeah not unlike a wax master for records exactly yeah although it was a cylinder a whole different machine a far more complex machine Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. something right out of tim burton that really existed yeah very very cool machine and very cool technique but it helped break that and bring another voice in where we do have voices while he's reading letters in this one one scene though yeah it's not used as constantly as it is in the first one which the first one uses it as constantly as session nine i'd have to say session nine and if not how house uses recorded bits and um evil dead uses recorded bits over and over and over so it almost Mm -hmm. becomes another character Mm -hmm. and if there's ever going to be a scene where somebody is stalking around the house looking spookily they kind of press play on whatever machine they needed to to have this voice in the background while they're walking around yeah feeding the 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 audience information while a character is exploring especially if you need a character your protagonist to be caught up to things at the same pace as your audience but you don't want to have an actual character coming in here i'm just surprised that there was two moments where i was surprised where you actually have daniel radcliffe reading a death certificate and it's filmed so we the audience can read it and i'm thinking oh man as if they're ballsily making the audience read while watching the movie and not just having him look at it and say body was never recovered fucking annoying right because people don't do that in real life people see a piece of paper and you read it but when there's a pertinent information and there's no one around you don't just say shit like that and they don't either they expect you to read it and you do and and it's just having confidence in your audience because this movie performed great and yes that probably had a lot to do with the fact that daniel radcliffe at the time was coming off of harry potter and there was tons of people that only a year later and he looked eight years older for some reason he looked like he was a man he looked like 10 years later that was magic for you fucking good looking dude all dressed up in that fucking old-timey suit every dude looks good dressed up in an old-timey suit nevertheless yeah (laughs) every dude looks good dressed up very dapper and i was enjoying it quite a bit at the time and right now yeah, when we were watching it and we were talking about this, I'd, I'd mentioned how it was interesting how mothers and their daughters could both have a crush on the same fella and it'd be fully justified. <laughs> Nothing creepy about that. Absolutely. And so I think that this was a wonderful opportunity. You have Daniel Radcliffe, a proven star that is just coming off of a multi-billion dollar franchise. You have Hammer Horror saying, we're doing this. You have a beloved British story that's entrenched in the minds of at least people from the UK. They're doing it right. They're doing it with a budget. They're doing it with a stellar cast. And they're doing it in a way that services the story. And they're not putting any extra bells and whistles on it, saying to us, no, this is the story. And we'll give you your scares. But you have to let us tell the story. And I think that if one of those things got loose and maybe people with money or, or, or like they got scared and then they try to put like more modern shit in it. And I'm not talking about like cell phones and, and shit like that, but I'm talking about 
more exposition, unneeded exposition, add a character. Oh, we can't have the dog stay with them. Have a person stay with them so he's got someone to talk to. It's things like that. Or like doing more different things with the, the woman in black herself. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. that shadow in the background isn't quite working. What we need is her to come up and we have to see her face and she has to linger, you know, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, I would have worried if, if they would have been listening to the Android's dungeon, uh, cross-armed in the back of the theater being like... Too much loud noises. Why isn't he talking to anyone? I need more pow and bang and boom. Yeah. I need. Yeah. I need more visual things. I'm getting bored. Would yeah. be the biggest complaint. Exactly. And I think that what we saw here was the birth of a modern horror classic. This movie is going to absolutely stand the test of time. This is a horror movie that is going to work forever. It's not going to be, oh, that's so fucking dated. Or, oh, geez. Like, it rises above the pack. Of the of tons of ghost stories that have come out in the last fifteen years, it's it really, just, really, really does. Even yeah. though there are bits of formulaic things, yeah, there are, yeah, there are. But but, uh, but I, I I think that it works, and I and even even a couple of plot points that I was shitty about and you were shitty about. You can twist them so, like, we're not shitty about them anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's a magical movie that way. (laughs) And that's part of why I like it so much, you know. And, like, not only because I'm surrounded by dead people's things and half-burnt and drippy candles and stuff like that. It was good. You even, like, pulled out ancient books that would have been new at the time of the, the where this movie is taking place at yeah and and letters and correspondence there's a stack of letters tied with string that's written in the same sort of like faded pen a lot like what we got to see in this film so yeah i set a little ambience but even as far as like things most recently and like uncanny coincidence in a way i've been writing um almost like a regency horror that has a, a man in the main um role a lot like what daniel radcliffe is going through in this film and some of the changes suggested by people that have read it are the same sort of things that you would have feared by somebody with money or someone who influenced yeah like they're they're suggesting some changes there's some changes that were suggested in this in the story i'm writing right now like in insert dialogue and it's like there is absolutely not one shred of dialogue in the story until the end and you have a note for me to insert dialogue and you know i respect the people's opinion very very much and that they're not in my mind and they can't see what my goal is with the story anyway or maybe don't come from the same background i do as far as what literature and films i really appreciate things like woman in black or things like shirley jackson susan hill you know they're not coming from that point of view so they're going to suggest things that they like that are probably from like blockbuster films, uh, more pop horror films, and more popular like Stephen King uh, literature, right? So it's not their fault necessarily, but it's just interesting that we're talking about how people want to inject these things to... So it feels safer. So it feels safer and more like recognizable to today's audiences. And so it hits all those beats guaranteed. And we're recognizing the formula with our little pattern and recognition human brains of what we like and what we reacted to. And we're looking to monkey see, monkey do and replicate that so that when we go and turn to critique something new, we just want to fill in all these blanks we're seeing with stuff that we've enjoyed. And it's just like an interesting duality that I'm experiencing right now, talking about 
but we're really glad they didn't fucking change with this movie and the some of the changes suggested and have been suggested in other works of mine it's not just this story too that's a constant thing when you're writing quiet horror people are like well you have to start with action you have to uh, introduce a monster right away you have to have this constant rapport of dialogue and maybe one of them has to be a sassy gay girl one of the stories that i was writing in in comics is a ghost story and one of the the first the first issue that i did really hits people hard with holy fuck this thing is here and holy hell is she violent but the second issue we pulled back and since we're telling the story out of time it was a lot of conversation. There was a funeral scene, there was which went on for a little while, but it's necessary. And it's necessary for you to get to know these characters. And some of the characters you're getting to know, and they're already dead. So it's this weird um, thing where things become more impactful as you read, even though tragedy has already occurred. And the biggest... I got a note back from my editor at the time. And I don't think I've read the word boring more <laughs> in my entire life. And it was that. And, and and even one of the notes I got from this individual was, can't you, there was an argument at a funeral, a hushed, toned, waspy argument. Can't someone throw a punch? Wow. See, and this is the same when people complain about the talking scenes in Death Proof. It's like, what, you just want Zoe Bell tied to the fucking hood of a car for the entire duration of the fucking movie? Is that what yeah, you want? I don't understand. And then another thing, there was a scene in a cafe that was happening. And they said kind of like a not even it wasn't even like a kitchen scene. It wasn't a lot of exposition, but it was important to to describe the the social hierarchy within this little group of friends. It was important to see what pecking order there was. And he felt that this was very boring. And then he said, can't you have something like an elderly couple arguing in the background or maybe someone with a big stack of dishes like falls over. And I remember just reading these suggestions, these notes that are so bad. It's like this mix of Archie and Punisher that you're looking for. (laughs) Can't someone throw a punch? That's going to be in the back of my mind for the rest of my life whenever I'm writing the quietest scene ever. And it's like, you don't realize that that's a fucking deck of cards that you just through a punch through yeah the rest of the story just doesn't exist now yeah thanks yeah and and i was like by the way we have a bunch of people with a big secret that someone was on the verge of talking about in an open forum and that's what the fight uh, that's where the fight occurred and then when they realized that everyone in the church is looking at them the fight is over people trying to keep a secret don't throw a punch in a funeral yeah because that would, I would not let that go. And how I knew exactly why that person threw a punch at somebody else. I would. Sometimes when it comes to things and people suggesting changes like that, I, I think you aren't actually reading this, are you? You're reading another story in your mind or you're writing one as you go along. So people watching The Woman in Black being like, can't someone throw a punch? Or I wish there was dialogue in this. They're they're thinking of a whole different show they want to be watching and they should just go watch that. Yeah. You know, people that complained of Crimson Peak and those are the people who went to see Women in Black and enjoyed it but complained about Crimson Peak. I have a problem with those people, really, yeah. because it's the same mood, it's the same milieu, it's the same sort of feeling and it's the same beautiful fucking story and beautiful use of character and setting. Like, if you enjoyed 
Crimson Peak, you'll enjoy Woman in Black. It's and vice versa. If you've seen guaranteed. Woman in Black, but you passed on Crimson Peak, first of all, don't pass on Crimson Peak. That is a beautiful fucking movie. And how dare you? Yeah. Stop the podcast right now. Go get Crimson Peak and watch it. Please and thank you. And it's beautiful. So Blu-ray is worth it. And this is the time of year where a lot of ghost stories should be being told. Old English uh, tradition is to tell ghost stories around Christmas time. So I think that there is no better film for us to do. And uh, even uh, Guillermo del Toro on Twitter was talking about that the other day. He's like, you know, old, Crimson Peak is a perfect Christmas movie. It's a ghost story. Yeah, it's an true. old English tradition to watch ghost stories. Yeah, he's tired of Scrooge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is sort of disturbing to me that Crimson Peak spent $55 million in making it. And gross just over at 74, 75, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this fucking movie was only a $20 million picture, which mm-hmm. is kind of surprising because the set dressing to me is so impeccable. It's, there's not a lot of CG, which mm-hmm. is, you know, believable. Like, mm-hmm. there isn't a lot used. There isn't any really used in the original. So why, why do that? And it's not really a hammer horror way. Um, but it grossed $128 million. It just blew itself out of the water. It's an yeah. amazing return for a film but to see crimson peak enter into box office Mm -hmm. around the same time of year and it's just so many things are very very similar between these two movies Mm -hmm. and it didn't have that sort of success is just mind-blowing to me it's strange i know a lot of complaints about crimson peak and i don't mean to talk about crimson peak but these movies share the same space in my mind Mm -hmm. is that people have a difficult time understanding what a gothic story is yeah and even though in crimson peak they tell you verbatim flat out what a fucking gothic story is because the main character is a writer who writes gothic stories (laughs) and explains to the her publisher who's complaining about her storytelling and, uh, and she explains to her what ghosts represent in gothic storytelling. They, they spell it all out for you. They make it very, very easy for you. Yeah. And I think that part of the problems with Crimson Peak is not entirely the fault of... Well, it's certainly not the fault of, of Del Toro because it, it, there was a bit of a mixed meta, a message. You give your movie to a trailer house and you give them to a trailer house and they make your fucking picture. And they feel that they know exactly how to sell this fucking film. So how this movie was sold to versus what the movie is. Yeah, the only people that didn't know what a gothic story was were the PR. Exactly. Yeah. And so they take every... You watch the trailers for Crimson Peak and you think that this is a white knuckle thrill ride of a ghost story with a ghost coming out of the, your fucking asshole. There's so many ghosts in this fucking movie. And you're halfway through thinking, can't someone throw a punch? Can't throw someone a punch. you do get. You do it, get. Exactly. And, and, and Del Toro, to his credit, letting people know that this is... He kept trying to say, this is not a horror movie. Just so you guys know, this is a gothic love story. And, and, and there are ghosts in it, but you need to understand that what this place is and uh, gothic storytelling is this. And he went on this, he basically had to come out and try to combat. Yeah. He was putting out fires, unfortunately for most of what he had to say about the film, instead of just accepting thanks and accolades from people who should have been spending 128 hundred twenty eight million dollars in theaters seeing this mm-hmm. like they did with woman in black which is just so weird to me yeah and the, the timing the timing right 
and the fact that they had Daniel Radcliffe and like there's all these different factors and not only that 50 million dollars is pretty safe 20 million dollars is safer yeah a lot safer so I, so there was a lot of factors going into Hammer's uh, corner with this type of film but I our, our point is is not that Woman in Black is unworthy and Crimson Peak is worthy what we're saying is these movies are both fantastic fantastic classic ghost stories with tons of gothic elements in them uh crimson peak more gothic than woman in black woman in black more of a straightforward uh horror picture very classic but very classy and gothic in its own right one worked one didn't financially speaking because when you look at these films no they both work they both are they stand shoulder to shoulder as modern classics of horror as far as i'm concerned but financially speaking, one did very well, one did not. Yeah, and watching them, I just want to watch the other, and I'm trapped in a forever Mobius strip of watching these two films, and that's it. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good, Lydia. Before we get in, uh, we definitely did mention that we'd like to thank our friends at Roomwork from way back when, in 2012. We both ended up being at screeners, mm-hmm. um, press screeners, so that we could write about this. I wrote about it for Ottawa Horror. Wes wrote about it for SplatterPictures.net, as mentioned, and HorrorMovies.ca as well. Um, another thing that our neat old little friends at Room Org have done lately, one of them in particular, our pal Tomb Dragomir, mm-hmm. who's forever Rue crew, he has just released a soundtrack. And I know in the last episode I was going off about Bandcamp and sending everyone to Bandcamp. And I always send people to go see Patron Saint of Plagues. And to listen to that song that I mentioned, Canadian Idol by Matt and Pauline Wilson. But today it's Tomb Dragomir. He's been doing Tomb's jukebox on rumor.com if you haven't noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, he does music and has for quite some time. But lately he has released the soundtrack to Gasly's, which is a Brett Kelly picture. And he's from mm-hmm. Ottawa, Brett Kelly. So that's sort of a, a cool Ottawa tie. And it's been having premieres here and there. Um so I definitely want to see Ghastly's. But Tomb had mentioned uh, their carnival. He was like, oh, God, you've got to. I can't wait till you listen to the soundtrack. You're going to love it. It's very, very 80s influence, very synth influence, mm-hmm. very punk influence. You're going to enjoy it. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, synth and punk, how do you blend those two? Who can blend those two? Tomb can blend those two. Yeah. Uh, I really like the, the main song was running through my head last time I was in the shower. Uh-huh, Ooh. You know, if you want to get dirty here. Ooh. Yeah. That's what I think about in the shower. Gasly's. <laughs> it's a catchy fucking song, so be forewarned. The soundtrack seven bucks at tombdragomir.bandcamp.com. It's got twenty tracks, kind of typical of a of a soundtrack. It's got all the incidental music and stuff. Gasly's a go go is my number one favorite tune. It's kind of got a deadbolt groove in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, really cool. So I highly recommend people checking out. This Gasly's soundtrack, let alone finding Gasly's when it hits the theater. There's premieres all over lately, and it'll probably eventually be on VOD, I'm sure. Yeah, I got to sample a little bit of it. It's definitely got some modern elements to it, but it's very retro. If you guys like the soundtrack to uh, a lot of films that seem to be coming out these days with a little bit more retro feel to it, this is stand shoulder to shoulder with that and not only that but tomb is a hell of a nice guy i've said it before i said it i'll say it again he's the first guy to say yes to me if you guys like our podcast and the website and hearing us uh it, that's my origin point is tomb dragomir so please uh do me a personal favor support this guy you're not even doing me a favor you're doing your fucking self a favor because you're gonna listen to this fucking these tracks you're gonna go see gasly's and you're gonna fucking love them so 
Yep. Yep, and, and then you'll have a new dose every day of terror tunes if you're tuning into what he's posting on the Tombs Jukebox. And maybe it'll interest you to go back and listen to old Rumorg Radio. And the next time somebody petitions to bring Rumorg Radio back, you can go ahead and sign that too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Absolutely. we're big Tomb fans here. We are, we are. He's a good dude, good dude. But anyways, back to the gritty gritty. I thought you were going to say, so what's this movie about? <laughs> so what's this fucking movie even about anyways. Which is hilarious. That's my favorite thing that Wes says about almost every movie we watch. But, you know, there's some movies that we know exactly what it's about because we've watched it over and over and over again. And that's mm-hmm. why I wanted to watch it for my birthday once I realized it was kind of a no-brainer and I couldn't decide between clown films. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've seen this quite often. The story is quite an old idea mm-hmm. and just a fucking lovely winter ghost story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Puts you right in the mood. Puts you right in the fucking mood. Yeah, it really, really does. Um, I like dressing as a woman in black, but I think it's funny how people confuse me with this woman that dresses in black and insidious Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. I barely remember that you even barely remember. You had to show me the picture of it. And I was like, ah, the further. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So everyone thinks I'm that that girl when I dress as a woman in black. Have people not seen this film? It, It, you know... It came out in a dump month. It came out. And so, yeah, a lot of people saw it, but a lot of people see a lot of these ghost pictures. And the ones that really stick with people these days are the conjurings and the sinisters and and uh, the insidiouses of it all. And Woman in Black really, even though Woman, uh, even though Woman in Black did get a sequel, uh, Angel of Death. Yeah. It, it, it They didn't really take it that far, honestly. Yeah, I wish they would. They could have. I don't know. I just really love this film. And last night in prep, I watched the original, which was super fun. And I highly recommend that, too, because I'd have Mm -hmm. to say that was one of my most enjoyable. Because I knew that watching this would be enjoyable. But watching the 1989 original was uh, one of the most enjoyable film watching experiences I've had lately. Sunchoke was probably the last movie that I enjoyed immensely. And it made my night. Not that I've watched bad movies lately. I've watched a lot of really great movies lately. But a movie from ni- a made-for-TV movie from 1989 mm-hmm. was like one of my favorite films lately. It's a really, really classy set. Now, back when I wrote the review, unfortunately, not much has changed. It is difficult to get your fucking mitts on. Uh, YouTube can yeah. help you out, though. YouTube. And it's a, it's a fine copy. It's a fine version. Um. This Woman in Black is everywhere, too. So if you haven't seen it, honestly, it's worth it. It's just as fun as Crimson Peak. You can watch them both. I highly recommend watching them both and just totally, like, immerse yourself in a little of my world. You know, you want some high back chairs. You want a lot of drippy candles, dim lighting. Big keys everywhere. Big keys everywhere. (laughs) Eel Marsh House. (laughs) <laughs> I wish I lived in Eel Marsh House. Eel Marsh House is the backdrop of this entire fucking film. And it is one of the most unique, creative, closed space environments that I can really recall. A lot of movies got the old creepy house in it. That is the star of the show in a lot of haunting films. This one has such a unique aspect of it, of the fact that it is... For certain times of day, it is completely inaccessible. Which is so cool. And that is sort of like what they're trying to do with these old gothic stories is have these 
uh, hearts and minds being inaccessible because of the fortress of the house that they're trapped within for whatever reason, the mm-hmm. fear or being actually trapped. Mm-hmm. But this one doesn't matter who you are or why you're out there, you're going to be trapped. Mm-hmm. I loved the panning shots up toward the house when they're following that so, causeway. So beautiful. Really, really beautifully shot. And the house itself being overgrown on an island, which is just like creepy it's got every element of like secret garden and the um the innocence you've got like all these old haunted creepy houses sort of boiled down to their pure essence Mm -hmm. into one that lives as eelmarsh house it's the most beautiful haunted house and i love the way that the set dressing is handled in this every room tells a story of its own really does too like it opens with the story of three girls committing suicide in a different house, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's another room that tells a story, just like every other room in Eelmarsh House. Uh, it's got all these children toys, and there's three girls playing inside this nursery room. And for some reason, they just look up to the window all of a sudden, like they've heard a call, stand up, and all three of them walk out the window and jump to their death. Mm-hmm. It's a hell of a way to start a picture. It is. On their way out, they just drop their toys, step on their toys. There's crushed dolls because they just dropped all of their toys, didn't care what they were doing or what was going on, and walked out. Later on, Daniel Radcliffe's character is given this room to stay in at the Gifford Arms. Relatively untouched. It's pretty much the same. The same cracked dolls are on the floor. The headless doll has been set aside. You know, it's very, 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 very creepy from our point of view because we know what has gone on in there. He doesn't. And... We see rooms like that even echoed in Eelmar's house where there's a room in an attic with three windows. And it's just like you've been already shown a story that isn't even living in this room. Mm -hmm. But then you're introduced to a room because they're sort of like characters later on in Eelmar's house where this tragedy didn't even happen. You weren't even creeped out by the story in this room, but it looks a lot like it. Mm Mm-hmm. That's one of the fascinating things about ghost stories to me. And I know there's people out there, especially in the horror community, that don't really like ghost stories all that much, find them too quiet or too subtle, or they're just sick of the amount of them. Or they're too formulaic and then bored with it. Yeah. But for me, th- there is something that's always going to buzz me, and that is the simple fact that you can know the history of a building, but you can never really know the lives that lived there. And so you can walk into a room and see a bunch of things affixed on the walls or bric-a-brac and you could maybe determine what a person's interest was. But what a ghost story can do is really give us a true window into the individual lives that were there because, typically speaking, hauntings in these stories are doomed to live out specific moments of their lives over and over and over again. Which we saw a lot of in 1408. Mm-hmm, exactly. Quite fascinating. And Daniel Radcliffe's character is sent to the Ilmarsh house to close it down to get ready for sale because... The people that owned it have passed away. And he has to go through a mountain of paperwork. He kisses his young son goodbye. And we learn through an unfolding of flashbacks that don't get in the way of anything. They're very quick. But they begin to tell the story of the fact that he, a few years ago, he lost his wife during childbirth. And so his son has never met his mother. And... And uh, it's, it definitely burns him to this day. He's still quite a bereft of that fact. And when he leaves his son to go on this trip, it is kind of a do or die scenario for him. Even though his law firm is 
on paper sympathetic to his lot in life at this point. Not so much so that they're going to keep him on if he can't buckle down and get his work done. And this house is a test of that. They want to go. Uh, the 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 person they've been corresponding with uh, from this location has not been incredibly helpful. Yeah, the solicitor that that lives in this little town in Gifford mm-hmm. doesn't seem to want much to do with. It. He's got a really arm's length dealing with the house, let alone the solicitors that are coming. That had been the lawyers of this widow. Mm-hmm. He's just not really being really forthcoming. Yeah, and so this is do or die. This is a test, and his boss is very frank about that. And off he goes. And when he arrives there, you definitely get a sense that people aren't exactly interested in helping him at all. And maybe one of the last times that we really dealt with this in literature and film is in Dracula, where we have a lawyer coming from abroad, or at least farther away, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they treat London like it's on the fucking moon. Um, yeah. Really. Yeah. So we've got somebody coming from far away by planes, trains, and automobiles, as it were, or mm-hmm. just a hell of a lot of trains because yeah. of this time. Um, I'm just like picking out dualities between Harry Potter and trains and this movie and trains. <laughs> but no one is forthcoming. No one's really helpful. And everyone seems to be guarding some sort of secret or story. And they're treating this person with even greater suspicion than they're due being someone from out of town. And for those of us who aren't familiar with the story of the woman in black, they might not totally understand the idea about why everyone would be so unwilling to help because it's not even a fact that they look at him and say, don't go to the old Dracula house, not without this. And they hand uh, old uh, Harker across. It's more that they don't even want him in town. No, they're just like, we don't have any rooms. So there's, it's like, there's... well, we telegraphed ahead. Sorry, you're out of luck. Which they really try to roadblock him. And even the solicitor says, these are all the papers. No reason to go. I go home. Uh, we have no place at the inn all week, unfortunately. And uh, anyway, I hired this uh, stagecoach driver. Yeah, your bags are already in there. Yeah, so you're... just hop on and the next train's coming. So hurry up. Yeah, you got, uh, uh, yeah, and that's all they want him to do. See you later. Bye. Yeah. You didn't need to come out, but thanks for coming out. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. Bums rush 101. Bye. Bye, bye. They just want him to leave really badly, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, doesn't really jive entirely with my um, suspicions that they kind of do want him there mm-hmm. to help sort of free them from all of this. But it's interesting at the beginning because we haven't been hit over the head with this storyline, which is beautiful. And I like the way that it's set up a little better even than the original, um, where you're not really hit over the head with this. But you've also been sort of subtly teased with all kinds of tragedy. Uh, Three little kids committing suicide right at the beginning and screaming mothers. You have, like, the screaming mother of childbirth. And when she dies, giving birth to Arthur's son. You know, you've been hit over the head with all of this tragedy. And then you go into this town where people seem to be perpetually mourning. And they're giving him sort of the attitude that I'm sure reporters get sometimes when they're going to collect information from grieving families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sort of the bums rush, no information, no one wants to talk to him at all. But he does make his way out to Eel Marsh House, thank God. And it happens quite soon in the film, which I like. Yeah. And not only is that quite soon, is that the second we get there, it's this beautiful reveal of the house, just these aerial shots, the path leading up there. He's paid the driver who was supposed to take him to the train station, gives him 
like six shillings or something like that, he's going to take him to the house. But kind of in, in almost like Dracula, this far, no far. Yeah, very similar. There's quite a few parallels to Dracula in this that aren't normally pointed at, but I, you, can't, you can't help it, right? Yeah, and the fact that it's it's Hammer just feels oh so right. Yeah. The reveal of the house is fucking great, and this is one of my favorite moments in haunting films. It's that first we open the front door and we walk into the foyer and just drinking in what this house looks like. And it's like being introduced to another character. Oh, yeah. Just the walls covered in dirt and the furniture is black itself. and Cobwebs everywhere for a real reason. Cobwebs absolutely everywhere. And oh, man, the fog looks fucking fantastic coming off this marsh. You had told me what kind of marsh this was, and I didn't know. It's a peat bog marsh. And yeah. like most marshy wetlands in the UK are more like a bog, and there's a, a very muddy underlayer. We we might uh, joke about quicksand and stuff like that from deserts, but it's, I guess, the UK version of quicksand. It's slow mud. But it does suck you in quite horribly like that. We have uh, pine bogs mm-hmm. here some, in some places, in some wooded areas in, in Canada, that have this, like, really murky, sludgy, black, pine-scented, so it's really good for your skin, too, and it smells wonderful, um, clay that is formed by these decomposing uh, plants, right? And peat is like sphagnum moss, and it's a, it's a moss that, when it decomposes, it creates these boggy murky things i don't know absolutely everything about peat bogs you certainly know enough though holy shit i just like mummies and (laughs) you find a lot like when you die in a peat bog and they found a lot of like crusaders and normans and things like that and i'm not even a historian really so you really should read up on peat bog mummies yourself um yeah bog mummies are wonderfully preserved too but they are like these stinky gross places of rot and forgetting you um they remind me a lot of the dead marshes in lord of the rings you know with just this misty murky horrible place that no one really wants to spend too much time in and it is dangerous because you'll not only lose your boot in there but you could lose your entire body in there very creepy very interesting things but i definitely urge people to look up the bog marsh mummies Uh, especially after watching this movie you'll, you'll be intrigued so not only do we have Arthur Kipps going into this place surrounded by muck and death and fog and cobwebs, subtle storytelling as he passes across on the road. And that's one of my favorite elements of ghost stories. I'm not going to be talking a lot about my favorite elements of ghost stories. I just love them so much. It is slowly learning the history of this place. You're surrounded by people basically unwilling to tell you. And we as the audience are also being trained to notice things. And when the camera pans on this cross, you know that that is marking something. There's yeah, we've definitely passed enough roadside crosses in our time. Yeah. And we know that there is definite tragedy uh, and a story to be told, uh, where nowadays you'll find some with a vote of candles and photographs, mm-hmm. and some of them might be quite famous. Or in recent news, so you can follow the news clippings and know exactly why that cross is there. This cross has no votive candles or anything. It's in the middle of a horrible marsh, so it's Mm -hmm. extra creepy Mm -hmm. to have this spindly forgotten blackened cross propped up in a muddy bog. Mm -hmm. 
once Arthur's in the house, we're wasted no time. 30 seconds within the house, we, the audience members, see something. What the woman in black excels at and is my primo example of is sprites that are meant for the audience and not the characters. The characters know that they are entering a place that is foreboding because it looks foreboding. But we know the extra thing of the fact that we're watching a horror movie and we've seen the trailers or maybe we haven't, but we know what this story is. It's a ghost story. And so we get to see a ghost immediately. And part of our anxiety will now be for Arthur's character who still doesn't see this thing. And this movie does this expertly in several key scenes. And this is just the first one. And blink and you'll miss it. And it plays with that aspect of, did I just see something? That's my eyes playing tricks on me. Yeah, it's because done really, really well they with don't... the background and yeah. using that vignette and a little bit of blurring, just the aspect ratio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Things that we know as filmgoers that we, we expect. The camera cannot focus on the 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 foreground and the background generally speaking our Especially eyes in such low light too it is yeah. just having the setting the way that it is really helped with that effect too mm-hmm. i was like we as people our eyes can focus on what's in front of us or what's behind us and then whatever becomes out of focus and the fact that they play with that in this scene is amazing it's a great start to what you know is going to be ooh there's going to be some good creepy shit in here if this is the debut so subtle i think that sometimes this is where people will expect a little too much from a film like this they're like oh goody i've already seen the ghost it's right there in the background now we're, we're just getting ready now any minute now any minute now she's gonna like jump out and we're gonna see what she looks like any minute now any minute now <laughs> you know <laughs> so i guess people get a little frustrated with that if they're into these like whiz bang boom kind of horror films mm-hmm. and aren't ready for the quiet horror right yeah um but those of us who get it and love it mm-hmm. really fucking love this mm-hmm. sometimes what people are expecting from their ghost stories is they want their characters to react very very frightened and to scream and and you want that to sort of amp up the tension for you but man Daniel Radcliffe's my original review of this, I'll say it now, balls of fucking steel. This guy does not shake easily at all. No, if there's a noise in this house, he goes and investigates it. If he sees a shadow move on the wall, he goes and checks it out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's I love that about this character too, because Mm -hmm. I've definitely been in that position far more often as an adult, Mm -hmm. even as a kid, than I have been the screaming, quaking, running person because where am i going to fucking run to mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. who's gonna who's gonna investigate this someone has to figure this out and daniel radcliffe does a really good job of that yeah he knows that the driver is going to be coming back in a little after five o'clock after the tide goes out because when the tide comes in in this marsh it's unpassable you're trapped which i really like that i've seen houses built in marsh on causeways before there's a few heading up toward past tomogamy when you're heading up north and i think there's a few on the way uh, toward Ottawa from north. And uh, we don't have the tide to deal with. We, once that causeway is built, if it's built right and the engineering sound, you'll always be able to drive over that causeway. This one doesn't even matter. I don't even know how the damn thing exists with the tide washing in and out over it all these years. Can years and years, because this house is quite obviously built probably like 
late 18th century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I really dug about it. We, as the audience member, are watching an old story take place in what for us is like olden days, right? It's the 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 start of the 20th century. And I mean, his friend is one of, has the first one of the first motor cars in in the whole area, but this house is already old by that point, so it's full of even older antiques. Even though everything looks like an antique to us, it's really cool and the creepiest fucking toys in the universe. Yeah, the definite creepiest toys in the universe. I love the automatons. I had one automaton as a child. It was a little dog that you wound up. And he would walk out a few steps, bark, sit down, sit back up, then jump. Then do the flip. And do a flip (laughs) and then land and then sit down again and yap and turn off. And I loved that stupid little dog. We had one of those too. We also had, I think it was my mother's or perhaps even my grandmother's. It was old. It was a bunny and you uh, winded it like and it would sing a lullaby it wouldn't sing it but it was like, da, 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 da. and the head would would sort of sway around and you could hear the gears kind of like zzz, i love that zzz. gear sound yeah and and then i always remember when it started to wind down the lullaby would just get all slow and sad and then it would turn off i thought oh, fuck, i wish we still had that because it was really creepy i loved watching antiques roadshow and if you ever want to like that's what these set dressers must have done if they didn't just create all of these things which is totally fine they definitely could have picked up some toys from toys r us or the local walmart and repurposed them all and made and antique them and distressed them to make them look like these toys Definitely. Or they could have just watched Antiques Roadshow for three years and just collected shit because there's enough of it that people will come to Antiques Roadshow with their little uh, symbol playing monkey automaton and they'll be like, oh, well, it's all ragged and this and that is wrong with it. And it's bent here and it's like five bucks. So if you want to like recreate your marsh house in your apartment, you probably can. Just have this one room full of all these fucking toys. People would think I was a crazy person. <laughs> or the coolest guy ever. No, it's bad enough that I got all the comics and action figures in there. If I had wind-up toys that look like they're 150 years old. And a lot of them do look pretty realistic. And in amongst all of these are a lot is a lot of taxidermy. Mm-hmm. There's the uh, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil monkeys that are taxidermy capuchin monkeys, which mm-hmm. I really love. There's quite a bit of taxidermy in this house mixed among what looks like automaton taxidermy, which has got to be a pretty rare skill, a really unique hobby for whoever would be doing that. Mm-hmm. And then there's like some very realistic looking and also very creepy and cartoonish looking clowns and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like all very, very creepy. Mm-hmm. I worry for people that are creeped out by stuff like this. People that have like the phobia of clowns or phobia of dolls. They might not have a good time with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you who else is not having a good time. It's old Daniel Radcliffe, but it's more to the point that he's just got a lot of papers to go through. They were not fucking around when they said that there is a mountain of papers to go through that's going to take him days and not only that but he doesn't really have a place to stay i'm not really sure who messed up all these papers because this widow had just passed away mm-hmm. did she just rifle through her own belongings day after day after day and make this big fucking mess or had someone been there looking for the will already and then sent him in after? i i think it was probably one of those scenarios and that's what i'm talking about this group of people these townspeople know that this has happened and 
the and they know what happens when you go to the Ilmarsh house. So I'm thinking that solicitors have come before or other people have gone to the house before after the death and have tried to figure out uh, try to go through things try Just to, to find her will basically exactly and like you could do like a prequel of this fucking story you know what i mean not that they have to but you could like because like the haunting didn't start now it started years ago right yeah and so and i'm thinking that the the last death that we see of the 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 sisters the the three girls at the start that was probably the last straw where they decided to close up the house because it doesn't it seems like it's probably been a couple of years since then and if you're taking that long to close up someone's house to the point where you're going to your law firm is going to send somebody there because you're in a very brief arm's length correspondence with a solicitor that's present who apparently won't go to the house i'm guessing that there was another solicitor that was there that was probably from the town that went there. Oh, that's why everything's such a big fucking mess. That's what I'm thinking, okay. is that they almost left in the middle of the night because they were so terrified of something, maybe even on foot, tried to make it out of that place themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And really amps it up. Oh, yeah. Really amps up the tragedy and the threat that this house represents, which isn't apparent right Not away. Really. All we know is that People avoid it. People want him to avoid it. He mm-hmm. ends up there, and he's kind of trapped there, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just would, lo- would relish the existence where people can only visit me at 5 o'clock. But, <laughs> well, really, I think that's kind of cool. Um, and we know that he's being haunted. There's things moving in the house. Noises. Noises. There's. We've seen things in the shadows. We know that there's a figure of a woman there. Mm-hmm. And then it starts actually becoming apparent to him. Mm-hmm. And we're getting fed a little bit more of the story. Oh, and it's coming in. They pull the taffy on that. They 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 don't dump it all, but you get to, you get a sense, inch by inch, what is happening or what had happened in this house with this family. Samuel Daly is um, one of the more wealthy patrons of this town he seems to own like quite a bit of property and, and he's got a motor car he's got a motor car he's the only guy in town it seems that has a motor car and he's befriended arthur because they met on the train on the way in he seems to know a lot more than he's letting on but he seems to be in full denial of it all so whenever arthur mentions anything that he's seen or heard it's poo-pooed immediately mm-hmm. by samuel no, oh, just a bunch of superstitious nonsense. And the fact that he's very wealthy, he seems very modern because of the fact that he has his wealth. He's got a car and and he very much is viewing and wants Arthur's to view these townspeople as just old superstitious uh, primitives, basically. He's not that mean about it, He's but he's very dismissive. Yeah, and he does refer to them as living in the dark ages with their superstitions. Yeah. Um, he's as polite as he can be, because he's not unliked around town, no, no, Mr. No. Daly, he, but he, like... No. And he is a full-fledged member of the community. We see him uh, engaging the community and helping out the community in certain aspects, but he decides to uh, to... Daniel Radcliffe's character can stay with him at the very least and introduce him to his good lady wife. Yeah, they have a nice dinner. They get talking a little bit about, like, he swore he saw somebody on the grounds mm-hmm. at the house. Mm-hmm. So he's got a few questions about that, but he keeps getting poo-pooed. On their way to dinner, 
And at dinner, he does keep querying Samuel about the things that he's seen at the house, that he swore he saw somebody, he swore he saw a woman, he swore he saw a woman dressed in black. Um, a few weird questions about the way the townsfolk react to him when, whether he's mentioning that he's seen someone at the house, just the fact that he's gone to Elmar's house, he encounters these little kids, because kids, when they're in trouble, turning to any adult, you know, um, say no go and tell someone you trust i suppose one of them has eaten some lye for some whatever fucking reason you drink lye and she's poisoned herself so she's vomiting blood and everything and runs into the arms of arthur for help while vomiting blood and people seem to be react very strangely to him being around a child who is in distress and it's just all weighing on his mind so over dinner when he's still told like people are superstitious da 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 they start talking about whether he has children or not, which is a question that's come up a couple times. And it seems like the wives in this town seem to ask him this real pensively. Um, and it's same as true of Samuel's wife, who starts talking about they had once had a son as well, which all of a sudden she decides to let him know that their son wants to draw him a picture. So she grabs a giant knife and starts carving on the table, which is normal dinner behavior dinners i attend anyway it's true arthur's like no you're marring the wood <laughs> what's a little automatic writing you know uh, amongst friends but yeah she's definitely freaking out she's having a spell she's obviously some sort of medium which also isn't taken very seriously by samuel at all either well, he like chloroforms her <laughs> basically yeah well it's helpful you know it's uh, mother's little helper <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> it definitely disrupts their dinner, but they retire like men are wont to do to their high-backed, overstuffed chairs and a glass of brandy. Oh, hell yeah. To talk some more about how nobody believes in the superstitious fluff around this town where everyone's convinced that if you go and see, if you go to Elmar's house, that horrible things will happen. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, it doesn't really strike Arthur's care or it doesn't really strike Arthur as that significant because he decides that he needs to return back to the house and not only that but he needs to return to the house and he's going to stay overnight which doesn't even seem you would think at this point because you're sort of getting fed bit by bit that something about the house is horrible when people go to the house horrible things happen mm-hmm. he's it's been revealed that People will blame him for the death of their children because he's gone to the house. So he's mm-hmm. like, well, fuck, I'm going to stay overnight. Yeah. Especially since the fact that they don't want him to go to the house. They want him to go home. And every time that you see kids, they are shooed away, shuffled back indoors. And even the solicitor's a daughter is kept locked up in this basement, like almost like a... Like a fucking animal. Yeah, like an yeah. animal or something like that. And she even screams at... Dan Reckless character to go away. She kicks at the door to tell him to get the hell away from her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know what's going on, but we do know that, look, we've seen the death of children before the movie even really started. And then we've been hearing lots of tragedy of parents that have lost their children. Then we know that Arthur's new friend has lost his son. And then we see a young lady drink lie to her death. Why anyone would do that, we don't know. But it's self-inflicted. Doesn't seem necessarily 
malicious. That's also like that. It, it teeters on that kid accident. It sort of fucks with your head in that way. You're like, well, we know that kids seem to be compelled to commit suicide some for some reason mm-hmm. in this world. But here's a kid that's done a thing that kids are always doing and what parents are cautioned against. She's getting into something. She got underneath the sink and drank some fucking Javix, right? Like why they have all these warnings on bottles and stuff and why um, emergency rooms will rush a child past all the bleeding grown-ups because if they've drank too much cough syrup or something. Like it's it's definitely a thing that children unfortunately do Mm. because they're curious little buggers. And this was a curious little bugger. Since her friends were around, it seems that it wasn't the fault of the woman in black, but all the adults are going to blame him. So now he's going to go spend the night there. On one hand, we, for self-preservation reasons reasons as human, we might not want to, because we're going to be like, well, it's just going to kill more children. But then we do want him to, because we want to know why. We want to rifle through this giant pile of papers. There's two kinds of people in this world. You give them a pile of yellowed papers from 1888. And half of them are going to just want to burn them, think of them as garbage, not be interested. And then there's people like me and Daniel Radcliffe who will want to dive in and spend all night reading through them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is what he does, thankfully. And it also introduces the thing that replaces the wax cylinders from the first film mm-hmm. and introduces almost a little bit of a character in the voice of the widow. Mm-hmm. We learned that this house used to house an or a rather unorthodox family, adopted parents of a young boy. And this boy wasn't adopted just from any old orphanage. This was adopted from the woman's sister. Which wasn't totally unorthodox. It was just mostly not talked about. And this whole town does a good job of not talking about stuff. We learned that the reason why was that they felt that she was unfit to look after her child because uh, she was suffering from some kind of mental illness. She was crazy, insane, but they didn't really specify about what she said or what she was doing that made her that way or why they would think that. They just say that she was unfit due to a mental illness. And there was a huge amount of resentment on the part of this woman I'm thinking back into this time, you know, we're thinking 18, 1880 to 1889. Her mental illness could have been being young, not wanting to live in a fucking eel marsh house in the middle of fucking nowhere, wanting to like read books or something. All of those things could have deemed her as mentally unfit. She could have just not gotten along very well with her older sister and had this poor child clawed away from her. Just having a child out of wedlock would probably be enough to have her sent to an insane asylum. Exactly. We don't know, but we do know that this started to bring an incredible anger forth as she knew that not only was this boy not... Not only was she not allowed to see her son, but it almost appeared like this boy was not allowed any correspondence with her whatsoever. They wouldn't give her the birthday cards that she would send. And so you might even wonder, did he even know that he was adopted? I bet you not. Probably not, because he would have been super young when she would have been able to be a little more vocal about Mm -hmm. the lineage. But then by the time the kid was five years old, it was probably just completely under wraps. 
Yeah. Nothing existed but these birthday cards that weren't getting through and letters of growing animosity between the sisters where finally Jeanette is wishing that her sister, Alice Drablo, who owned the house, would rot in hell. Yeah, that send-off, rot in hell, holy fuck, that's epic. I love that. And she writes this final letter because of the fact that when her son was seven years old, there was an accident in which their carriage in the middle of the night or in a heavy fog, heavy fog, I think, Probably heavy fog because there seems to be some very thick fog. Even the first night that Arthur was out there, he's ensconced in this fog he can't see through and he's hearing things and seeing things. It's it's really quite scary. Goes off the trail and sinks. Horses struggle and and he's getting these flashbacks. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe, the first day that he's there, he's getting a, a vision, a mostly auditory vision of this tragedy that happened down by the cross, which isn't really that far from the house and isn't really far that off from the path. But the time being what it was and the panic, whichever, they managed to save themselves but not save the boy. And as we know from the, the death certificate, not he died when he was seven and the body was never recovered. Yeah, hence the cross. Mm-hmm. Sad stuff, really sad stuff that he finds in amongst all these papers, which is what I always wish to find in a pile of yellowed papers. It just evokes all kinds of interesting shit, and the, you know, at the very least, the story of this family is dark, tragic, really fucking interesting, and we can tell, oh, absolutely, if even in this separation in life wasn't enough to cause animosity and hatred that you could reach beyond the grave with the death of this boy would have sent it over the edge and we know that amongst those paper that Jeanette dies through self-murder self-murder yeah she has committed suicide therefore cementing this idea of anger and animosity and death, the improper burial of a person, and then, at least in the eyes of religion, the improper death of this woman. Yeah. And now has made Eelmarsh House this epicenter of hate and malice that is seeping out into the nearby towns to anyone that looks at her, to anyone that sees her. Because she definitely haunts those grounds. And that story enough right there is, is enough to keep people from this house. It's like, okay, he gets it. This place is haunted as fuck. And it's extremely unsettled spirits. Mm-hmm. Whether the mother or the fucking son himself, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, both of them are very, very unsettled spirits. If you believe in that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. He's going to slowly start having to believe in this because it's going to fucking knock on his door. And... The nice, nice little touch is his friend lends him his dog just to keep him company over the night. Yeah, Spider. I like the dog from the original much better, I must say. I'm not a big fan of wire hair jacks, but it's a cool dog and it's a nice addition. It's a good dog and a nice little early warning system for something that's going on. Aren't they? That's why people have dogs and cats, I swear to God. That's why I'd ever have a dog. Mm-hmm. That's why my mom didn't like being without a dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, we find out a little later on that this self-murder was the hanging, mm-hmm. and we get some nice visuals of that. That is what 
Samuel's wife had carved so crudely on the table as someone mm. hanging themselves. Yeah. And again, it's this conflation of all these subtle hints that are telling a story. And scaring us far more than the central characters. Absolutely. Daniel Radcliffe is fucking walking through this house with an axe in one hand and a lantern in the other, just or a candle, just not afraid. Or just just so curious. Yeah, and so it's not that he's oblivious, curious. but we can't blame him for being oblivious. We can't blame him for being oblivious. Not like 13 Ghosts where we're like, put on the glasses. They have the glasses. They know there's ghosts. Like, you know, put on the glasses. But we're sitting there being freaked out because we're seeing all these horrible creatures around them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm sort of tricking this, except that we can't blame the character. We're not yelling at the character for being stupid. We're applauding the character for being gutsy. Mm -hmm. We're also very, very nervous for them because we know what's around yeah. the corner. And all these fucking great shots, these close-ups on taxidermied animals or these toys where it's you know that it's like the spirit itself looking at them. And all these subtle, you know, Daniel, after he's finished... Uh, reading those notes falls asleep briefly in the chair and we see the woman in black creeping up, up at him with a pov shot and then he turns around and there's nothing there oh it's so fucking good but there's another element to this haunting that not a lot of people are talking about or and you can understand it as the real source of fear for this town and we get a sense of what it might be as the very fact that daniel radcliffe's character arthur sees finally that there's more than just the woman in black haunting this place. There is a pack of children, each one pretty good exemplified by how they died and looking creepy as fuck. So if you got a problem with creepy kids, this one has got this in spades. And you start to piece together that the woman in black is not just angry that her son was taken from her, died tragically in other people's care, and then she killed herself. What she is doing is indiscriminately taking the children of anyone that she possibly can. Almost any child she can reach. And it's triply terrifying when we realize that because he ends up going back into town just after sort of meeting these marsh ghosts. And the house of the solicitor is on fire. Jerome's house is on fire. Mm -hmm. And everyone's screaming for the daughter who was locked in her bedroom in the basement. And we know that because we saw that scene earlier. Yeah. And Arthur had met her. And like anyone, I'm sure, feels for a child that's locked in a room, he goes braving the flames. And here he is not having too much care for himself. Mm -hmm. Not as much regard for his own safety and just wanting to help and save other people. It's the second time he sort of saved a kid in the city. Mm -hmm. And I guess that doesn't mean much to these town folk because he's the cause of all this fucking damage that's happening, especially amongst their children. So it doesn't matter. He could save 20 kids from burning houses. They're still going to blame him for all of this. This one he doesn't save. He no. goes braving the flames, bursts down her door and encounters her also sees the woman in black has appeared in this room. Mm -hmm. So she's just not contained to the eel marsh house in the grounds in the graveyard there. Mm -hmm. She can appear wherever. I don't know if it's just to him, and he doesn't seem to know this, but it's definitely finally really fucking freaking him out, and he knows he's seeing a ghost at this point. And this movie doesn't fuck around because, I mean, this little girl is holding in her hands a lantern full of oil, 
In a burning room. In a burning room, smashes it down and just lights like a Christmas tree. Foof. Mm-hmm. And it just as reminiscent as all these other children that have walked into the sea, that have walked off of window ledges. They just go on automatic. Drink lie. Yeah. Kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And he finally gets the straight story uh, from his friend and then his friend's wife who um, believes, who really lays it all down for him that their son walked into the sea. People believe that the current took them, but they know that they, that that's not the case. And because someone had gone to the house and seen the ghost and it doesn't matter who sees her, when you see her, how you see her, how long you see her for, if you see her, it will be followed by the inexplicable death of children. And it doesn't need to be all connected either, because that's why he can be a solicitor from out of town with his own children mm-hmm. that he needs to worry about, his own child anyway. In the original, it's two kids, but in this one, it's just the one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like there's a threat just to him and his family. It's a threat to anyone that she can reach, mm-hmm. basically. So, of course, the whole town is terrified and on guard like having a rabid zombie running around could bite anybody absolutely he then has a realization that his son and their caretaker is going to be with them on friday and we're encroaching on that arthur asks his friend why why didn't you tell me and he just didn't want to believe it he didn't want to believe that this was true and he thought it was nonsense but at this point you can't honestly deny anything. This presence in the house is getting more aggressive. The more he's there, it's just getting bigger and bigger. And not only that, but there's been some uh, things got fucking crazy the last time he was there. You got little muddy boys and shit. Yeah, scared him pretty good. Rocking and, chairs. And oh, the rocking t- the the rocking chair scene. I swore he saw someone in the window, and when he went back, there was like a handprint. And the screaming, and just and and the and it, it's the point where the haunting has gotten so severe that it scares him right out of the house. And why didn't you tell me? And they realize that they have to. His son's coming. They have to stop his son from coming. Yeah, because it's being made very very clear that it's not just like oh, you see the girl, she kills the kid. You see the girl, she kills a kid. It's sort of like if you see the girl, then she just goes on a fucking killapalooza mm-hmm. and just takes as many kids as she can reach. Uh, I don't know if there's a time frame on her uh, apparition or her powers or her reach, but she just seems to be killing like as many fucking kids as she can. Mm-hmm. At the very least, if there, we, we're not exactly sure at this point what the proximity of her, what her radius is, we'll say, mm-hmm. but... We know that if his son makes it to this town, he's in grave danger. And she seems to be using Arthur as a signal boost. So wherever he goes, she can go to. Exactly. And they try to send a telegram to stop them from even uh, coming. But, well, the post office has burned. It was part of that fire. All of these buildings are all connected. So it burned up real good. And there was really nothing they could do. Daniel Radcliffe knows the entire story now. And he concludes... Because he's Christian. Because he's a good Christian lad. He concludes that the best way to handle this is to reunite the two. That they're searching for each other. He's seen the spirit of the boy. It's fucking terrifying. That candle moment lights the camera. And that, that just like that open mouth, like, like muddy baby. 
I remember that freaking me the fuck out in the theater. Really? I don't mind saying, holy fuck. I was like, holy fuck, I don't like that. <laughs> and usually creepy kids don't really do it for me. Although uh, Toshio from The Grudge really scared me too. So maybe I am kind Toshio of... Toshio I really like, but I'm not really scared either. Like I enjoy the marsh ghosts very, yeah. very much. I yeah. enjoy... All creepy kids, very, very much. I enjoy the creepy kids from Hellions. I mm-hmm. Toshio's kind of creepy. I will admit that. But none of them actually scare me or freak me out at all. This one even, like the muddy little tar baby that he is. Oh, man. I when, when he comes out of that marsh and then starts walking towards the house, I was like, oh, my God. I don't, do not want, I don't like this. <laughs> yeah, little Nathaniel's pretty pretty freaky looking. Oh yeah, little Nathaniel. He's such a, a proper little rich boy with his like perfect blonde hair and his Lord Fauntleroy outfit. But when you cover him in mud, do not want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's pretty scary. Enjoyably scary. But they know exactly where his body is. And if they need to disinter and reinter him, which I find just so formulaic, I... I'm really tired of so many ghost stories hinging on this. This gets a definite pass. And so do all old literature that have this as an element. Mm-hmm. It's just, I find, overused in a lot of more common contemporary horror films. It's sort of like they write a story and don't know how to end it. And just like, oh, I know. What we have to do is dig up the baby corpse and bury mm-hmm. it with its mother. You see these in a lot of instances, but I think this film gets a pass for several reasons. Now, one of the things that that you initially had griped about, we'll go in turn. You griped about something, and then I gripe about something else. How come no one else thought of this? It's been fucking killing kids for a decade or two in this town over and over again. And everyone knows exactly where the kid is buried. Everyone knows the story. Anyone who's a good Christian faith will recognize this whole body needs to be buried properly, which mm-hmm. is still... Because like, the idea that Arthur is the only one that's been afraid for his child enough to think of a reason is ludicrous, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. But now they have a motor car and they never did before. So more as so do you have something? Yeah, you could probably go there into the marsh, bring a couple horses, try to get the horses and and, and which I guess they've tried and a couple of able able back uh, people to uh, to help pull it out. But the the mud will just suck it all back in. And you only have so much time with the tides and everything, too. Yeah. And it's pretty precarious. If you bring too many people or like another carriage or all these horses, what's stopping them from falling the other way into the exactly. marsh? So there probably are horse corpses on the other side of the causeway. Oh, there's definitely the, the, the two horses that were part of that carriage in the first place are still in that mud. That'd be so cool. Right. So now you have a machine that has multiple horsepower wow that that could maybe do it and so in in a in a way that people are so it's so movie to me the complete disregard for your clothes or anything like really daniel Radcliffe, you're just gonna go into that mud fully clothed with your shoes on i just say can i have anything well they didn't have like the helly hansen weather gear they can just go down to local mec no i and get your foul weather gear on you're i just gonna... would say take your pocket watch off i don't even know if they had hip waders and there's probably only one guy in the entire town with hip waders probably just like there's only one guy in the entire town with fucking car wristwatches were designed to withstand a lot more back then too and so were clothes much better made so maybe it he'd gone into boggy marshes wearing this exact outfit before this is boggy marsh clothes yeah anyways 
they they manage barely barely manage to bring this shit. This shit's been sitting in that mud for fucking twenty years, thirty years, Since something like that. Eighteen eighty nine. Yeah, and so he's he's got a motor car. So you're probably we're probably at what do you think like nineteen. Like probably 1922. They yeah. probably give us a date somewhere. Yeah, probably, missed. but it's 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 like 1920s early. It's either it's it's yeah, it's like 1920. Let's say proper or 23 or something like that. So yeah, now finally after all this time, you can get up and the, the body has sat in this, and so that takes care of the gripe that you had. The gripe that I had, which you uh, educated me about, was I was thinking, okay, 30, 40 years in the fucking muck. And what does he pull out of that muck? A body. I was expecting him to pull out bones, if that. I, I was like, I was like, this kid has been in there so long, it's just a skeleton. All that mud, all that bacteria, it would have broken it down to nothing. Or not so, not so, sir. Not so. Yeah, I, I had the pleasure of showing Wes some pictures of um, bog mummies mm-hmm. from the uk and they're quite popular they're all over the world people can be preserved very very well in a marsh because of the way that the mud and the sills and the clay it becomes sterile in a way the bacteria that you would suspect would be eating away at these things like they would at the bottom of the ocean or whatever just aren't present so it's like this inert place that dries out the skin very slowly and it becomes kind of one with this silty clay under muck. Mm-hmm. And much like mummies preserved in ice in the Arctic, you get the same sort of effect or mummies preserved in desert sands. You get mm-hmm. that same sort of effect that you wouldn't expect from a wet place. Mm-hmm. You get these really wonderfully preserved and tanned, hided mummies which totally explains and i can see the one of the mistakes that this film did make in that way is assuming that that's common knowledge it would be common knowledge to uh, a british theater for sure because they've this is they've been finding bog mummies forever they're much more used to this so it would make more sense to european audience where we don't have that problem here (laughs) yeah yeah we're not picking mummies out of our our bogs very often at all at all at all or we just don't go looking for them maybe maybe that could be a new canadian pastime is picking around in our our bogs but our bogs don't have that same sort of sphagnum peat moss thing going on so we'd probably rot and be mushy bone piles um but they are quite pretty mummies and they are held together really really well and you had said that okay maybe before knowing this you're like maybe it gets a pass because maybe there was like wet fabric and he was in the on the floor in the bottom of the carriage and there was something that kind of kept them all together Mm -hmm. like that but no he didn't need it he was just kept together by good old peat mud they bring the body out and they bring in, they I guess clean it off the best they can. Daniel Radcliffe cleans himself off best he can in that filthy tub, and then he sort of strews the birthday cards around, puts a cross on the chest, and then turns on all the little toys, and and almost as like a siren call. And his friend is trapped in the house with him, like literally trapped. And his uh, the ghost of his son. Uh, has slammed him into this room. I don't know if it's for protection or to what. Keep him away so he doesn't stop this ritual that because, seems to be going on. Because the kids are not 
a malicious presence. They are trying to protect in some way, shape, or form. Protect or inform. Yeah, inform, yeah. which which is protection in a way. Yeah. So. If you pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So especially since uh, uh, that little boy's mother is a medium and got possessed by uh, him enough to give uh, Arthur a lot of information. And what comes is what would be the biggest moment in this film because everything sort of ignites at once. The the woman in black at the end of the hallway, the, the, the rocking chair starts going again, which we know is the site of her suicide. She kills herself in her son's old room. Mm-hmm. And the, the ghost immediately comes to Daniel Radcliffe, fucking screeches past him, and we're screeching past him, and then goes into where the body was, and then... Goes away. He won. He won. He the the day is won. He has defeated evil, and we're good. Well, maybe not evil. Maybe tragic. No, it's evil. It's evil. She's evil. She's full of hatred and evil. And just to be like lashing out at townsfolk for decades that had nothing to do with it. Yeah. And that is what makes this an interesting ghost story. More of a force of nature, less of. A specific form of revenge. Like black mold. Yeah. Yeah, it can live there under your baseboards, but as soon as you take those off, it's probably going to spread around your whole house and into your lungs and kill everyone that lives there. Yeah, the woman of black mold is what this movie really is. When Arthur meets his boy at the train station with his friend introduced and everything's fine and dandy, they're talking very briefly, and then as this guided by some otherworldly presence, his boy pulls away from him jumps down into the train tracks as a train is oncoming. And walks straight into it. And Arthur jumps down to try to save his boy. I mean, we've seen him do the same thing for children that aren't his. There's no way he wouldn't for his own. Yeah. And unfortunately, they're both struck by the train. And as the train passes, his friend Samuel sees the kids in the reflection. Probably his own son among them. And then the reflection of the woman in black herself. Glaring, glaring, full of hatred. So nothing changed. Nothing changed. And that is an element, a story element that I think that even though it has a bit of the cliche, a bit of formula. That, that makes me that, cringe. That, that makes you cringe. This makes me happy. That makes you happy. The idea that this, they were wrong. And you can't blame them from coming for coming to that conclusion. It was the same conclusion that I loved so much about the ring. It was that Sadako or Samara, whoever you want to like give name to, just wanted out of the well. And the realization that all they the well was the only thing containing her. And once you let her out, you realize that it may, on the surface, how could anyone hurt an innocent child and her parents were monsters? Not understanding that their parents were doing the only thing they could to protect themselves and maybe the world was to kill <laughs> the world, yeah. was to kill this absolutely malevolent force of evil in life that they couldn't have possibly known would become this malevolent force of evil and death in the same way that even if at any point this woman in black, Jeanette, might have been ever a good person, all that's left is that anger and hatred and revenge. Yeah, and all she wants to do is kill children and watch you suffer. That's it. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter who you are or how she's going to kill them. And she's going to make them kill themselves, which is even worse in a way. It's not like having anyone raise a hand to them whatsoever either. 
there's a bit of a there's a bit of a happiness to this. They 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 throw in a little a little warm. Yeah, and fuzzy. it could have ended there. You know, it could have ended with the train whipping by, seeing all the marsh ghosts and seeing the woman in black, just sort of lording over her evil empire of marsh ghost kids. It could have ended there for me. But I guess to be that bomb that soothes the hearts of parents worldwide so that everyone can live happily ever after in heaven where everything is fine. Is Well, you're saying that very shittily, but basically uh, the, the family is reunited in death. I will admit that the line of the little boy, he's holding his little boy. They're ghosts. We're, it's very clear that they're ghosts because there's no one around, no train, just tracks in them. And they look kind of sparkly and ethereal. And the little boy says, Daddy, who's that lady? Which is part of us sort of flicks in fear with like, oh, God, it's the woman in black has followed them into death. Mm-hmm. But then the other hopeful part of us knows exactly who that lady is. Absolutely. And Daniel Radcliffe answers with, that's your mummy. And we get to see them all reunited, which, of course, kind of makes me cringe because like you didn't really need that. It was such a nice ending just knowing that that evil scourge, much like Black Mold, that is the woman in black, that is Jeanette Humphreys, mm-hmm. can persist. In this case, I agree with you. I don't mind happy endings. I don't. And I certainly don't mind the aspect of a family. This is what most people relate to. People who are writing this type of stuff, this is what they want to talk about. Fine. Push and pull of the status quo. Yeah, like a lot of the, the end of the movie is like, well, it's important to be together. That's what it is. It's important to be together. And then Jeanette Humphreys lets us know that, no, being together doesn't fucking matter. But then the status quo reigns supreme and says, no, what's important is being together. Yeah. So I agree that that it would probably be a lot more powerful ending if they left it at just train tracks, the reflection of the woman in black, credits. That probably would have been a good way to go. They cut back to the woman in black. They pan around her face and she seems to notice us, the audience. Which is really cool ending. Then credits. You know how you could have made it even worse? What's that? Is have her come at you through the camera and screaming, break the fourth wall and scream like a banshee like she did when she was going toward the corpse of her son. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. Uh, that's how I remembered it. But I feel like, but that's clearly not what happened. But like, I, that's how I definitely feel like I remembered it. That's how I remember it too. So that was kind of weird. Do you think that they recut the DVD entirely? So there are examples of theatrical cuts happening. And then when things are released to home video, they are changed uh, subtly. And they're not called director cuts or anything like that. It's basically just like, no, 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 it, we it didn't work with audiences one really good example of that was watching one of the star trek movies nemesis where a a character dies and towards the end of the movie they remember something where the character was trying to learn how to whistle and they were the character in in the thing was uh all around the mulberry bush is what they were was with the song that they were trying to do but in the movie, he was like, what was that song that he was always trying to whistle? And then it sh- had the audio from the, the of the song whistling, even though the character doesn't say, oh, yeah, it was all around the mulberry bush. But in, I swear to fucking God that happened because I remember it. But then when I saw it on home video, it was gone. So I said, oh, you know what? I wonder if people thought that was hokey or dumb or they just didn't like it. And so they took it out. And I think they did. The... um. One scene that are like most famously the whole like uh, Han shot first thing mm-hmm. that was a famous change as far as what people responded to and then what they acquiesced to, which is kind of like egregious. I'm one of those people that find that change egregious. Um, 
then the change with the ending of Descent, having a far more U.S. audience-focused ending that was a lot more status quo, familial, and Christian, as mm. opposed to something of somebody just their descent into madness, which helps with the fucking title of the story. Yeah. But I don't think I've seen the American. Still, no. I've yeah. never seen that American change. I've seen the, the the ending of the descent that that yeah. Where, that's it. They, they don't get out. Where any rescue was a dream yeah. and it ends with a fucking birthday cake. Yeah. In the darkness and utter madness. Maybe we just wanted her to come at us screaming that badly. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't remember. But all in all, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a good ending. I would have agreed that. Yeah, we should probably leave it just at the death. Just to sh- this movie had pulled no punches up until this point, so I don't know why now they would feel the need to. It's not very British. Not I don't very- know why I'm not like so against like the ghost moms coming back. It's the same problem with Thirteen Ghosts. If want to bring it back to Thirteen Ghosts again, but like, but the whole ghost mom coming back just to say I love you guys. I think I think I think you just come from a headspace of having a different opinion about family and different needs for connection than most other people and since you're in a world in which you are the minority it can be frustrating to see that kind of stuff constantly as opposed but that's why you're a writer that writes your own stuff because you want to live in a world where people don't always write about relationships and people don't always like love isn't the answer um a lot of my stories come from a place of like, there's no such, there's sometimes you do things where you cannot be forgiven. And no matter how much saying you're sorry, maybe that's the the Christian in me believing that weird, well, I'm not a, I'm not a Christian just for the record, but all the church. We've all had this like osmosis. We're Christian by osmosis, unfortunately, no matter yeah. what we subscribe to. But, but like being going to church so much as a kid and always hearing these stories about well, you could be a big asshole, and as long as you say you're sorry, you're okay. I was always, well, no, what if you're a huge asshole and you say you're sorry and it's not okay? What about that story? And that's very much what Kishin is and what moments like this are, where it doesn't matter. You, This is an unfixable problem. Yeah. Just like The Ring and just in Crimson Peak, this, this place results only in death, and it has now become a permanent place in which the the world of the living and the world of the dead will constantly intersect and if you die here you become trapped between worlds so now i wonder if this train station is going to be that sort of place and if um, kids are just going to die it's not about kids dying either i'm not stoked on that in particular anyone dying maybe this will be a place where your pet dogs will suddenly start jumping Mm -hmm. in front of the train because this whole new tragedy took place there so what do we got next for him? Coming up next, we have the Holly Jolly Black Christmas. Oh, shit. Followed by Terror Train. Mm-hmm. I got a train theme going on. Right? <laughs> right? Uh, not too long ago, the Horrors of Not Chosen Hamantaschen covered Silent Night, Deadly Night. Mm-hmm. And they had mentioned how they had really actually wanted to cover Black Christmas and just sung the praises of this wonderful Canadian horror gem. Mm-hmm. But they had a hard time getting hold of it. They couldn't find it streaming. They couldn't find it to purchase. It was too expensive to purchase when they could find it. So they ended up covering Silent Night, Deadly Night instead, which is fun. That's a perfectly fun movie. But we got the gold, baby. We got Black Christmas, thanks to you and your box store-like collection. (laughs) I got the... The Amazing Seasons Grieving's edition. Of course you did. 
That's right. We're going to be spending Christmas with you guys talking about the history of horror and slashers and what many consider, myself included, the grandfather of them all. Mm-hmm. And then on to some Jamie Lee Curtis loveliness. Oh, my God, because how can we do holidays and slashers without talking about my best friend and yours, Jamie Lee Curtis? I know, right? And it's one of the few New Year's horror that isn't recognized as such like and all i'll always say maniac is not recognized for the christmas movie that it should be mm-hmm. where people will talk about die hard as yeah, a christmas movie hard, yeah. and not maniac yeah boggles the mind but a nice new year film for your friends to watch while you're watching the ball drop or before you watch the ball drop if you're stupid enough to do shit like that you can watch Terror Train. And you want to know something? I saw this movie for the first time before my balls dropped. Really? Fascinating. Because <laughs> that's what we want to think about is Wes's balls. I'd rather watch Wes's balls drop than Times Square. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> I'm Wes Knight. Just barely. <laughs> and you've been listening to Dead Air.